You're listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at redrocksbaptist.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist. Last week, we dove into Colossians 3, and I addressed the topic of how Christians change. Pastor Addison uh, referenced that this week. Christians change through grace-driven effort, meaning the Holy Spirit gives us grace, and we come to the table, and we supply our effort. Uh, We're not passive in this process, and yet it's not up to us completely. Uh, It's through grace-driven effort. And that involves this process that's in Colossians 3, 9, and 10. It was in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 in the scripture reading this morning. It involves putting off the sins of the flesh, changing the way we think, renewing our minds, and then putting on the fruit in, in the grace of Christ. And that's pictured by this little diagram called the tree. Now, I've got several of those printed on the back table uh, if you're interested in that after the service and actually uh, in September, sometime this fall, we're going to talk more about this and do more practical hands-on training with it. And we're going to talk about it also today in our text this morning. But the tree pictures for us this process because there's fruit that is the exterior of our lives. And if you just try to change what you do, you might be able to switch your habits a little bit, but there's not true transformation taking place. Transformation comes when we see God through his word, we think rightly about God, and then we make adjustments in our life as a result. Now, as we look at Colossians chapter 3, the first area that Paul addresses in this process of change is that of our purity, our sexual purity. Colossians 3, 5 through 7, let's read this, and then we'll pray and get into this text this morning. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. These three little verses call us to overcome sexual temptation and to strive for purity. Would you bow with me in prayer as we ask the Lord's help today? Father in heaven, we are thankful that we can come and worship you and sing and hear the word uh, of Scripture read and then sit under the preaching of your word. And as we come to a text like this that, that is so heavy and it's so challenging, We pray that the Spirit would move in our midst, that he would quicken hearts, make us alive, enable us to be doers of the word and not just hearers. Whenever we talk about something like this, this area of purity, there are no doubt people here today, believers, unbelievers, who are struggling in this very area. And we pray that as the word is preached, that hope would be communicated and that victory would be seen as a result. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
in the course of preparing to preach week in and week out, the reality of spiritual warfare is sometimes more pressing than others. And that was, that was very true this week. That as I prepared this text, as our pastors prayed together, there was a weight to it. There was a weight to this topic of heavy spiritual warfare because of the, the nature of purity. Sexual sin has captured literally millions of people in our country and in our world both outside the church and unfortunately inside the church. And sometimes we think that an area like this couldn't be true of good people like us in here, of Christians. And I've got several statistics to share with you over the course of the message today, but this one is just staggering. And it drives home the need for a message like this right at the beginning. Covenant Eyes, a uh, software accountability website, has run statistics and they've done research and they've interviewed thousands of people and they've said this, of the people that they surveyed, 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women admit to watching inappropriate things like pornography at least one time a month. 64%. Two out of every three. 15% of women. So that, that old thought that, that women don't struggle with this, that goes out the window too. If you took those statistics and applied it to the numbers that we have here in our church, we've averaged about 275 people for the last seven or eight months this calendar year. That's 100 people. 100 professing believers that are struggling with their purity. Even if, even if we said, let's cut those numbers in half, those are way too high, which as an aside, most of the time the statistics are true. I'd love to be wrong on that, but most of the time they're true. Even if we cut those numbers in half, we're still talking about 50 people in our congregation that are struggling with this topic. And yet we don't talk about this, do we? If there was an area that we knew that, that 50 to 100 people in our church was struggling with, suffering perhaps, or affluence and, and wrestling with riches, we would preach on it. And yet this sin has festered in the dark for far too long. And no one can accuse me of picking this topic. It's just verse 5. That's just the next verse we're going to. And as we begin today, it's a very heavy message. It's a sobering message. It's not one that we treat flippantly because this, this issue isn't contained to just teenagers or young adults. There are some of you here today, and I don't know who you are, but you're enslaved to this sexual sin. You're drowning and you're, you're, you're you're actually to a point where you're wondering, is, is there any hope of ever overcoming this? Perhaps there are others of you that, that have wrestled with this in the past. This is part of your, your history. 
and you're very sensitive to it, and you, you don't want to fall back into it, but there's always this lingering fear of, is this going to be another week that I'm pure or not? Others of you have children in the home that you're trying to raise for the glory of God. And with the advent of technology and cell phones, there's, there's so much access to this. And yet we don't even know where to start. How, how do we help people? But ultimately, all of us will face temptation in some capacity. There are very few human beings that walk this planet that don't have struggles or battles against sexual lust. How do you overcome sexual sin? That's the big question, is it not? How, how do we overcome it? Are we just consigned to walking around, living life, pretending like everything's okay, coming to church week in and week out and just thinking that we're okay or, or at least good enough, godly enough that, that, well, just this one area is accepted? How do you overcome it? How do you conquer this? When it's a temptation? How do you conquer it when it's been something that you've been into for years and it's been enslaving you? Now, this is a sensitive topic, and so I will try to be discreet, but I'm going to be direct because our text is direct. It calls sin, sin, and that's what it is. And, and there's, there's, a, there's a holy uh, uh, hatred, if I could say it that way. There's a holy rage that gets into my heart sometimes when talking about this text because it's neutered so many men's lives, so many families, and so many churches because of secret sin. And so I have two simple goals this morning. I want to warn you of the danger, and, and we're not going to just say, oh, it's bad, let's move on because it's uncomfortable. We need to see the full extent of the harm and the sinfulness that this is. We need to see, as the Puritans would say, the ugliness of sin until we get desperate for Jesus. And then what we'll do, second, I will warn you first, but second, is I want to give you hope. That if you are struggling, you can overcome. If a loved one is struggling, you can't help them. There is hope because the word of God is clear. The spirit of God can transform any sinner regardless of the sin. The scriptures say that the power of the spirit of God is greater than than the power of the flesh. To overcome sexual sin, you need to see three realities about this type of sin that's found in this text. First of all, sexual sin is common. You will face it. Now, in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, we have a command to set our affections on things above. We're to orient our life towards Jesus, towards heavenly things, so that we're not enslaved and captured by worldly living, earthly living. And the first thing that, that in, under the inspiration of the Spirit that Paul calls out here is that if you are going to live for things above, you must not be involved in sexual sin. 
we have to resist illicit sexual desire. How does verse 5 describe it? Put to death your members which are on the earth. These sins use our physical bodies to indulge the flesh and multiply sin. And then what follows, as you can see in your Bibles, is what's called a vice list. There are these lists all over the New Testament. And what Paul does here is, is very interesting. And you'll see it here in a moment. Let's walk through what each of these words mean. The first word is the word fornication. The Greek word is pornea. We get the word pornography from it. And this word is the general word for anything immoral. It covers every type of sexual misconduct. Premarital sex, pornography, adultery, homosexuality, polygamy. We, we could keep going. All of it is covered and condemned by this term, for fornication. The second term is uncleanness. That's the idea, maybe your translation says, impurity. And, and it communicates the moral corruption and the indecency that comes through this. When someone falls into or chooses to sin in these ways, there is moral pollution that comes with immorality. The third term is passion. This is the Greek word pathos. Maybe you've heard that word before, pathos. And in this context, it emphasizes the strong desires and passions. We would even call it, in our terms today, a sex drive. The appetite for immorality burns deeply in the human heart. Passion. Then there's the word, or the, the phrase, evil desire. And that word desire is often translated lust. It's the word for lust. But what Paul did here is to make sure that we, we are clear on if these, these lusts are good or bad, he attaches a little word evil to it. Evil desires, evil lusts. Behind every choice to sin, behind every fruit is a sinful desire. We want something out of the will of God. And then there's a, a very interesting word that comes last. It's the word covetous. And maybe you thought or covetousness, I guess. And maybe you thought, why is that term there? That doesn't seem to fit with the other terms. Covetousness is simply the desire to have more. We would call it greed. And what Paul does here is show us that, that this is the heart of immorality. The heart of this type of sin is a desire for more and more illicit experiences. Sexual pleasure cannot ultimately satisfy the human heart. It can't. When a person insists on seeking satisfaction in these things rather than in God, they have ceased to worship God and they have worshiped their carnal desires. We call that idolatry, which is exactly what Paul says next. Covetousness, which is idolatry. The person who is involved in these sins, who's desiring more and more, are bowing before the altar of immorality. They're worshiping their passions. They believe that this, this sinful experience will bring them fulfillment and pleasure. And what they've done is they've told God to step aside and they've put their passions, their desires on the throne of their heart. What's really interesting to me is Paul 
is teaching us that the external fruits come back to the roots. This is the tree. The fruits that Paul mentions are fornication and uncleanness. That's what we do. The trunk communicates our desires. That's our passions and our, what does the word say? Our lusts, our evil desires. It's the things that we want. And at the roots, the heart of the issue is a desire for more and more of this type of pleasure, which is idolatry. The occupants of the throne of our hearts is no longer God, but a sinful desire. So Paul is talking about these qualities, these six words that he uses. And the other thing that he's communicating with these words is he's showing us that they are very common. These sins are common. Our world is saturated with these things. Let's focus on the sin of pornography because it's the most popular sin and it's the gateway that leads to many other sins. And the the rise of pornography in the last 25 years is unprecedented. Here are some other covenantized statistics about pornography because it's common. Revenue for this industry in the USA ranges from 12 to 14 billion with a B, billion dollars a year. That means it exceeds the revenues of the NFL or the MLB or the NBA. It is more profitable than one of the three major sports. The worldwide revenue for this industry is around $100 billion a year, which would place it about number 65 in ranking of countries' gross domestic product. It's more profitable than two-thirds of the world's nations. Approximately 28,000 people are watching porn every second. 40 million Americans regularly visit porn sites. That's 12% of America. And this is so sad to me, this next one. 90% of boys and 60% of girls are exposed to pornography before the age of 18. 90%. and 60%. It's out there. It's common. And why is it so common? Why is it so popular? And the the word of God tells us because it's, it's, it captures the human heart. It's appealing. It is pleasurable. And, and sometimes in our, in our thinking, we have, we, we try to pretend like these experiences, these illicit desires are not pleasurable. No, they are. That's why they're appealing. If they weren't pleasurable, no one would struggle with them. What does James chapter 1 say? James 1, 14 and 15, every person is tempted when they're drawn away of their own desires and enticed. Now those words drawn away and enticed were actually used in the first century of fishing terms. It's a fishing illustration. Now, there are some of you here that would be much better at explaining this than I, because I am not a fisherman. But from what I understand, when you go to fish, you put a bait on the end of the hook, you throw or cast the reel, and you try to draw and entice that fish to take the bait. That's what sin does to us. It 
tempts us by putting something pleasurable on the hook to get us to come into it, to take advantage of it. But, like the fish realizes eventually, that bait ends with a hook. It's the same way for us. James 1.15, the next verse, when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. When the bait is taken and the reel is set, the hook is engaged. Sin takes place in our hearts. And it, it shows us that these sins are very common because they're, they're appealing to us. James says that they're from our own lusts or our own desires or cravings. It's the idea that there is a tailor-made or custom set of desires, custom lusts to you. What you struggle with in the way that you struggle will not be exactly the same as the person sitting next to you. Your temptations are custom fit to you. And that, that could be really discouraging if we think about it. But that, that really leads me just to two simple points of application. First of all, it's common. You will face it. So be ready for it. We can't go on our, our days whistling in the dark, pretending like this will never happen to us. Until we admit that there's at least a temptation out there, we'll never be able to guard against it. You're going to face it. So be ready for it. But then second, if you're facing it and if you're swimming in it and you're drowning, you are not alone. It's common. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Every temptation that's taken you is common to man. You are not the only one in the world who's facing this. And because God is faithful, you are not the only one who can overcome it. The grace of God says that if you're facing it, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there is a way of escape through the faithfulness of God so that you can resist the temptation and walk in purity. It may feel like there's no way, but the Bible says that there is. You will face it, so be ready for it. It's coming. Now, though it's common, we could go off one extreme and say it's common, so it's just going to happen that way. No. It's common, but we need to be really clear about this. It is totally inappropriate and unsuitable for a Christian. It is sin. And that word sometimes makes some preachers allergic it's sinful, and until you accept God's view of it, there is no hope. The second reality about sexual sin is that it's unsuitable. You must resist it. You are not permitted by the grace of God to wallow in your sin. You must resist it. There are many, many reasons why sin why immor immorality in general, why pornography in particular is unsuitable for you. I just want to give you three reasons today. One scientific reason and then two biblical reasons. I don't want to spend too much time on the science here. But there, there's, there's a lot of research out there. And, and the conclusion of all these scientists is that pornography specifically has undeniable effects, undeniable consequences on you, and they're all bad. They're all bad. Maybe you've never heard this before. 
But what's, what's really sad, another thing that's sad, is that our culture's moral compass is so broken that only 55% of adults, 25 and older, say that pornography is wrong. In fact, as I'm looking at the statistics here in my notes, 90% of teens and 90%, 96% of young adults are either encouraging, accepting, or neutral when they talk about pornography with their friends. That means that the, 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 the winds have shifted and our culture has largely accepted not only that this is common, but that it's good. And it's not. It's not good. It causes brain addiction. Here's a quote from a scientist from a Senate hearing testimony almost 20 years ago now. Modern science allows us to understand that the underlying nature of an addiction to pornography is chemically nearly identical to a heroin addiction. It's not good. Just like with drugs and alcohol for a pornography addict to get the same high, they have to increase the frequency and intensity of their sin. And that's why pornography is the gateway that leads to other sins, just like marijuana is the gateway that leads to other things. Porn never travels alone. It brings with it a host of evils like anger and bitterness and immorality and apathy and violence and lewd speech, to name a few. But pornography also deforms you. It doesn't just attack your brain. It actually reshapes you into a meaner, more selfish person. This is an extended quote, so hang with me on it, okay? But what this author says, he's a professor at Midwestern Seminary in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. Listen to what he says. See, what we know, now know about porn use is that it rewires the brain. Neuroscientists have actually discovered this. It dulls our senses, redirects our impulses. We also know that it is directly influential on a host of sexual dysfunctions that are now epidemic in the world. Porn takes what God has designed for a married man and woman and in the guise, this is key, of making it more appealing and more exciting actually makes it more and more boring, more and more less satisfying. That's how porn's like a drug. You always need a bigger hit to feel the same high. And like drugs, it can kill you. He continues, what we can see happening spiritually over and over again is that long-term porn use makes people more impatient and less kind. The continual consumption of images of the objectification and degradation of people made in God's image can't help but result in the user's objectification and degradation of people in their real life who are made in the image of God. The use of porn will make you meaner. The bottom line is that porn deforms us. It will make you into something you never wanted to be. Porn takes something God has designed for our good and the good of others and perverts it into something selfish, harmful, and poisonous. Why is that? Because the scriptures tell us that what you behold shapes you. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image even as by the Spirit of the Lord. You see, what you gaze at shapes you. And this author is saying that when you gaze at illicit images, it shapes you. And it doesn't shape you for the better, it deforms you. 
But there's something else he says here a couple of slides back is that, that it, it objectifies people and it degrades them. And it's degrading for the people on the screen because they're engaging in things that are, that are totally inappropriate and sinful. But it degrades the person viewing the screen also. Everybody involved in this sin is degraded because it objectifies people. It debases everyone. And it prohibits intimacy later on. Clinical studies have shown that pornography users have far more trouble with any sort of intimacy in marriage. And I'm going to be discreet here. It obviously leads to diminished trust between spouses. It makes a person far less empathetic and emotionally sensitive. That's been proven. And it causes physical challenges to being intimate in marriage. The root of it is that it sets an unrealistic expectation for the marital relationship. There are other scientific reasons, but we don't resist sin just because it's harmful to me. Okay, this is not self-help, but there is good research to show how badly it deforms us. Why else do we resist these sins? Well, because of what God does to it. Because of God's attitude toward it. What does God say in verse six? Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. God's attitude is that he pours out his wrath on them. He pours out his wrath on these things and those who practice them. Now you may be thinking, but I'm a believer, so I'm not under God's wrath or condemnation anymore. You're right. As his child, God loves you and does not want you to continue in sin. So what does God do? Hebrews 12, he chastens you. He chastens you. You cannot walk with spiritual confidence and spiritual health while engaging in these sins. You can't do it. Why? Because God's will for you is to be pure. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. This is how you are made holy, that you abstain from fornication. So a lot of times, Younger folks, uh, college age, young adults, what's the will of God for my life? What's the will of God for my life? There's like six or seven passages in the Bible that explicitly say, this is the will of God. Start with those. And one of them is that you would be pure, that you would not be sexually unfaithful. But the second reason that God judges these things and chastens believers who are in them is because these sins twist and pervert God's good design. You see, physical intimacy is a good gift from God in the right context. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God created a man and he created a woman. He united them in, in marriage and he blessed that physical union. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And God said it was good. The problem with all these things is they divorce the gift from the context. They divorce the gift from the giver. They try to use the good gift that God has in an inappropriate way. That principle is, is throughout our world. Let me just give you one quick example. Many of you men go hunting, and to go hunting, you need a weapon. Most of you, I don't think, are tracking down elk with your bare hands. That'd be impressive. So you use a gun, or some of you hardcore enthusiasts use a bow and an arrow. But let's take a gun, for instance. If you're going to go hunting, you need that weapon. 
That's a good thing. It provides food for the table. But is there anyone in our culture who uses a weapon for harmful things? Yeah, absolutely. So a good gift used in the wrong context can do harm. That's what we have here. A good gift from God, physical intimacy and marriage, used outside of that context can do great harm. That's what God says. So God judges these sins. But there's a third reason, that's in verse 7, that these sins are unsuitable because, verse 7, because of our new identity. In which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. So there's a couple things that happen in this verse. He's saying that you used to be this way, so don't go back to it. But the other thing he's saying is, you used to be this way, and now you're not, so there's hope. You are different if you have come to Christ. We read it this morning, Ephesians 4.20. But you have not so learned Christ. It's unsuitable for a believer because of your new identity. So what have we learned about our identity in the book of Colossians? We've learned that you are redeemed. Sin's power has been broken in you. You've been forgiven. The guilt and the shame that sin has provided is, is gone and taken away at the cross. You're reconciled to God, which means that you have a beautiful relationship with your Savior and your Creator. You are saints. You know what the word saints mean? Do you remember? Made holy. You are holy people. That's your identity. That's who you are. So why, if we're holy people, do we practice impurity? Why, if we've been forgiven, do we go back to the same sins? Colossians is trying to help us understand that Jesus is our treasure, right? And so if Christ is the most glorious thing about us, the thing that we would live for and die for, then why are we saying he's my treasure, but I love this thing here? If Christ is our treasure, then we pursue things that match him. We forsake things that tarnish his glory. If you set your affections on things above, you won't set your hearts and your minds on earthly things. To be engaged in a sin like this produces guilt and shame, and there's, un, there, there's a massive weight of guilt that comes through using a sin or engaging in a sin like this. Can a Christian have an effective, joyful Christian life if they're trying to wrestle this secret sin? Shake your head left and right with me. No, it's impossible. And some of you are living it. Some of you are like, yep, you're right. I have no joy. I have no peace. I have no hope. And those are the things in the New Testament that come through our relationship with Jesus. Your spiritual confidence is destroyed. You have little impact for Christ when you're living like an unbeliever. And at this point of the message, you're in one of two camps. Either, number one, you say, you know, I know what you're saying. I see it, but I don't want it. And I'm good the way I am. And I'm going to set it aside, and I'm going to tune out, and I'm going to reject it. I hope that's no one here. Because if that's you, verse 6 is for you. God judges these types of sins. The wrath of God is poured out. He will chasten you. 
But at this point, I think we've seen the, the, the depths of depravity here. And so the other camp is the better camp. It's the camp that says, I agree with God. If you've been guilty of using this sin even this week, or if you've never seen it in your entire life, anywhere in that range, if you agree with God, then you're ready for the next point. Because when we take God's view on an issue, when we take God's view on life, there's always hope. Here's number three. Sexual sin is not just common, is not just unsuitable, it is beatable. You can defeat it. And there's some, there's, there's just, there are people here, I, I just know, the Spirit's moving. There are people here who just need to hear that. You just need to hear that there's hope. That you don't have to live in sin anymore. That Romans 6 is true, that there is no bondage to slavery. That in Christ you are free, not free to do whatever you feel like doing, but free to live for God and serve him. And the next question is a huge one. If there's hope, then how do I get it? How do I defeat sin in this way? And the answer is back at the beginning of verse 5. It says, therefore, put to death. Three little words, put to death. In the King James, that's translated mortify. We're not talking about mortify like I'm so embarrassed. We're talking mortify like mortician, like going to a funeral home because something or someone died. And what Paul is telling us is that sexual sin is beatable through mortification. So that's probably not a familiar word to you. What is mortification? Mortification is the putting to death of sin in the life of a believer. We are indebted to a man who lived 400 years ago. His name is John Owen. John Owen. He was probably the greatest Puritan theologian who lived. He was English. And he wrote on a number of subjects. And he's, we would say he's brilliant. He's very difficult to read. If you've ever tried to read him firsthand, he's very hard and weighty. But his gift wasn't just depth. He actually wrote in a pastoral tone. He wrote practically to the hearts of people. And he wrote three little treatises, that's what they called booklets back then, on the topics of sin, on temptation, and on mortification. On how to defeat sin by putting it to death. And if we had an extra hour, I would go into greater detail about that. But let me summarize what he says, and then we'll get into the how. He says that mortification means that we have a daily battle against sin. That it's a daily struggle, a constant fight against sin. Mortification then is the the constant or habitual weakening of sin where you are, as he says, trying to severely attack it, giving it new blows every day. Don't let it get off the mat, we would say in our language. So it is a constant fight against sin that habitually weakens sin in your heart and that when you mortify, there is frequent success against sin. That doesn't mean that you're perfect. Doesn't mean that you'll never, ever give in. But it does mean that you can have consistent victory over sin. 
Jesus was tempted, and he never gave in. James 1 says that when desire, when lust has conceived, when it's engaged in, then it becomes sin. And so what what we're trying to do in our spiritual lives is draw the battle lines as close to the temptation as possible so that instead of indulging in sin for a period of time and then saying, oh, I've got to stop and confess this, we are going all the way back to the point of temptation and saying, no, by the grace of God, I'm not going to take a second look. By the grace of God, I'm not going to go there. By the grace of God, I'm not going to say that. And ultimately, mortification is not just what you do. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Owen is very clear about that. He says this, quote, The Holy Spirit is the only sufficient means for the work of mortification. This is what we talked about last week with grace-driven effort. You have a role to play, but the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers you. And the analogy I gave from a friend of mine is that we provide a thimble or a teaspoon of effort, and God backs up a dump truck of grace. And it's, it's this way in this struggle. Here's what John Owen said, and you may recognize the phrase at the end. He said this, quote, The most saintly believers who appear free from the condemning power of sin make it their duty every day to mortify the indwelling power of sin. Paul exhorts us in Colossians 3, 5, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. He is saying, make it your daily occupation. Do not cease a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will kill you. Your fight against sin starts with your attitude. It starts with your stance against sin. If you don't view it as that bad of a thing, you're not going to fight against it. The battle starts with your attitude. Is it your daily objective to kill sin in your heart? And when you've made that decision, then you step into the how. How do you mortify sin? This is the way I like to think of it. You're draining its lifeblood by battling it at its roots. The housing market right now is just terrible, as several of you know. And if you were to go to a new house or maybe a house on the market and you walked in and everything looked good except the real estate agent said, there's mold everywhere in the house. Well, what good is that? (laughs) Say that you buy the house anyway. Mistake number one. You buy the house and you, you put in new furniture. Does that solve the problem? You paint the walls. You put new artwork up on the walls. You gut the kitchen and just put in new appliances because that's what Joanna Gaines does. No, if there's mold in the house and it's pervasive, what is the only way that the house is going to actually get clean again? It's a total and radical removal. You may even have to strip it down to the studs. You may have to take uh, the the sheetrock off the wall and put new ones on. And in our lives... If your battle against sin is simply rearranging the furniture or painting the walls, you're not dealing with the heart of the issue. You have to strike sin at its roots. And actually, that's what Paul tells us in verse 5, right? He goes all the way down to the roots. Mortification isn't simply changing your behavior. That's behavior modification. You can go to a psychiatrist for that. That doesn't lead to hope. 
Mortification isn't simply distracting yourself with other things. Oh, if I just think about this over here when temptation comes, that may work once or twice, but that's not transformation. How do you mortify? How do you drain sin's lifeblood? First, you have to identify your sinful desires. You have to go through the thought and the process of temptation to get to the root of the issue. And here's where the tree comes in that's so helpful. Because sin and temptation, especially sexual temptation, has triggers. And as you're thinking through it, if you're struggling or if you're going to try to help someone who is struggling, you need to walk through these things. When are you tempted? On what occasion? Is it late at night? Is it when you're under stress? Is it when you're tired? Is it when you've had a great disappointment? Most of the time, there's a contributing factor, a trigger, that causes the individual to walk down the path of temptation. So when does temptation come? Well, when temptation comes, then you need to start identifying the sinful desires. What are you wanting? What are your passions longing for? And there's a number of things that could be here. Are you wanting simply pleasure? And in my limited experience, most of the time, someone that's, that's involved with immoral thinking or, or, or pictures or pornography, they're not just after pleasure. They're after something else too. Sometimes it's pleasure plus control. Sometimes it's a relief for me. Sometimes it's distraction. I need to, to kind of remove uh, myself from a situation. Sometimes it's, it's breaking with reality. Sometimes it's, I want to experience this now. I can't wait for God's plan. Think through what you want. And then we get to the level of lies. We want something God has forbidden, so what do we do? We choose to believe a lie, and the lie justifies it to us. Here are some common lies about lust. It feels good. Well, yes, it feels good, but did it tell you that its end leads to death? No one will know. That's a lie. It's not that bad, or it's good for me. I can stop when I want. It's not really hurting me. It doesn't affect anyone else. <laughs> I can't help it. I just have to do it. It helps me relax. It comforts me. It's the one thing I can, can, I can control. And you know what all of those things are? They're lies from the pit of hell that enslave godly people. Because every single one of those things rejects truth about God, your God. These sinful thoughts and desires come from wrong beliefs. So to resist temptation, you have to inject truth about God into the situation. So you have to identify that pathway of sinful desires, then you inject truth of God into the situation. And last week I mentioned that scripture memory is so helpful with this, but sometimes we use scripture memory in the wrong way. Scripture memory is not a, a, a religious relic or a lucky rabbit's foot that, oh, if I'm being tempted, I just quote a verse of scripture, I rub my little rabbit's foot, and the temptation magically disappears. Or I put my holy cross out there and then, you know, ward it off. No. 
What's the purpose of Scripture memory? Psalm 119.11. God's word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, what Scripture memory is, is a bolt of lightning. Because in the moment of temptation, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about this. In the moment of temptation, we become fixated on our, our thing, whatever it is that we're tempted by. And we're, we're not really rebelling against God, but we're forgetting God. And what scripture memory does is it shines that bolt of light into your situation so that you snap out of it by the Spirit of God and you choose to obey God. You have to inject truth about God into the situation. And yes, if you're struggling with purity, yes, God is holy, so you should be holy too. That's true. But remembering truth changes our view, and you fight the lies with truth. If you say, I need pleasure right now, no, God is wise, and he said that pleasure is in this context. His plan is better. Or I want pleasure right now because it's something I can control. I can stop it when I want. The Bible says, no, you can't stop it when you want. It's not that bad. Well, actually, the truth is it harms your relationship with God and God judges it. God is good, so you don't have to seek pleasure outside of his plan for you. No one will know. No one will see. God knows. God sees. It doesn't hurt anyone else. Sin always has collateral damage. What about God's promises? I can't overcome this. I have to give in. No, God says that there's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. You don't have to sin. God's commands are to not defile my body with impurity, but to use it to glorify him. He commands me to abstain from impurity. And what he commands, he graces us with the ability to obey. We inject truth about God into the situation. And ultimately, there's something that expose, that, that's exposed when we get to this heart level. And it's this. The battle against lust is the battle of a greater desire. It's a battle of faith. Believing God and accepting his word are the foundation for spiritual growth. In other words, do you believe God's word enough to resist something pleasurable because you trust that what he has said is better. Kevin DeYoung writes this about Matthew 5.8. Matthew 5.8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Here's what he says. Another longer quote, but hang with me. We need to fight desire with desire. Satan tempts us by holding out something that will be pleasurable to us. We've talked about this already. We aren't tempted to gorge ourselves on liverwurst, because for the most of us, it doesn't hold out the promise of great pleasure. But sex does, pornography does, a second look does. The Bible gives us many weapons to fight temptation. We can tell ourselves that this is wrong, it's sinful, it'll lead to bad things, it's not what I should do as a Christian. Actually, we've talked about those. All of those are helpful, but the one weapon we rarely use is more pleasure. We need to fight the fleeting pleasure of sexual sin with the far greater, more abiding pleasure of knowing God. The fight for purity is the fight of faith. It may sound like nothing and hard work, but hard work and gritting your teeth, that's the very opposite of faith. But faith is at the heart of this struggle. Do we believe that a glimpse of God is better than a glimpse of sin or in a glimpse of skin? 
In this way, we battle lust, not with the absence of desire, but with a greater desire, a desire to see God in his holiness, because ultimately seeing God is more satisfying than our lust. That's why making Jesus your treasure is so important because there is nothing in this life that can give you satisfaction like Jesus can. He's worth more than any sin. He's all you need. He's sufficient. And so we don't fight sin out of a sense of blind duty where my commander is totally ignorant of what's going on and he's commanded me to go charge up this hill anyway. That's not how we fight sin. We fight sin because of the greater joy of treasuring Christ, of loving him with all of our hearts. And if we love him and want to love him more, then why would we be distracted and held down by something so earthly? Another Puritan, Thomas Watson, wrote this, till sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. The solution for every sin is to savor the sweetness of Jesus. So how to mortify, you identify your sinful desires. You inject truth about God into the situation. You fight desire with greater desire, and then you live in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit empowers you and changes you. There's so much more to say here. But you can resist sin at every turn. Galatians 5 says that when you walk by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. You're either walking according to the flesh or according to the Spirit. And by the grace of God, you can live in the power of the Spirit. So how do I overcome sexual sin? Here's the glorious message of hope that God grants to you victory. Victory over sexual sin through spirit-filled, gospel-powered mortification. By God's grace, you can leverage the power of the gospel by killing sin. It's the only pathway for hope. But if we have the pathway, if we, if we have the victory through the Spirit, then why don't we fight sin? Why don't we mortify it? Well, maybe we're lazy. We just don't get around to it. Maybe we're content. We like the sin the way it is. We don't want to change. Maybe we're proud. We think we can handle it. We're a tough guy. We, know that we think we know better than God does. But ultimately, deep down, I think the reason that we don't kill sin is because we fundamentally believe God's holding out on us. We think that God's saying no when something good is on the table in front of me. And I'm going to trust what I think and what I can see and what I can feel more than what God says. And in that way, we are just like Adam and Eve. Choosing to resist and ignore the word of God for what we can see in front of us. God's plan is always best. His way is always most satisfying. He's not an ogre commanding you to stay away from something that's for your good. He's a loving, wise father commanding you to stay away from something that will kill you. So maybe you need to have a change of heart about God. Maybe you need to have a change of opinion, a change of view about 
about God's intentions for you. Maybe you need to start mortifying, start killing sin. And I don't know how many. I, we started off with statistics that there could be 50, 60, 100 people here today that are wrestling with this. I don't know. But even if there's just one, this is for you. Get clean. God gives grace. Yes, obedience will cost you something. It'll be embarrassing. It's shameful, sure. But the longer you wait, the, the harder the consequences will be. And, and, and sometimes we, especially men, we think that we can handle it on our own. I can deal with it by myself. No, you can't. This sin lurks in the dark. Bring it into the light. Get help. Confess it to the Lord. Men, I, I believe that there's many reasons why we struggle in life that, that, that are all valid. But I think this area, more than anything else, cripples godly men. And it doesn't just cripple you as a man. It cripples your family, cripples your wife and your children, cripples us as a church, and ultimately, it cripples society as a whole. Because godly families and godly churches are built on the foundation of godly men. So even if you're a tough guy, get help. Our pastoral staff this week is waiting for you. Ladies, if you're struggling, my wife can talk with you. She gave me permission to say that. Find help and encouragement through God's people because we're a community of grace. That's who we are. I've said a lot of things. Let me close with this. Please don't let your pride get in the way of your purity. It's not worth it confession and a renewed relationship with Christ and spiritual vitality is worth it. Would you bow with me for prayer? I just want to appeal to you. I'm going to pray for you. I don't know who you are, but I'm going to appeal to you. Don't, don't, don't resist the spirit of God working, please. Father in heaven, you know hearts. The word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, discerning the thoughts of the heart. You see everyone here. You know our hearts. You know our struggles. I have no clue who needed this today. But it's sobering. It's heavy. And it's real. And we plead, Father, that you would do your work the only way that true revival can take place is when sin is confessed and holiness is flourishing. And this may need to be the first step for many people here. We pray that you would empower them to get help, to confess sin, to seek restitution, to walk in purity. Because that's your will for them. And what you command them, you always give grace to do. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to audio from Red Rocks Baptist Church. If you enjoyed this content, please consider sharing it with others. Our mission at Red Rocks Baptist Church is to know Christ and to make Him known. May God bless you as you follow Him.